Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O.com. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to hear more from the FT, the FT Edit app gives you eight of the Financial Times' best stories handpicked daily by our editors. You'll get the perfect daily dose of expert opinion, surprising stories, and fresh perspectives from across politics, culture, business, and more. Start your free one-month trial today, then get your first six months for just 99p per month. Currently only available on iOS. There's a link in the show notes. Previously on Hot Money, the pressure on Daniel Kinahan is rising. His partners in the Dubai super cartel are starting to fall and police around the world are working on a secret plan to take him down for good. It's the morning of April 12th, 2022, and reporters and TV crews arrive at a press conference in Dublin that's been called by the Irish police. Officially, there'll be an update on how law enforcement agencies are working together to collaborate against international organized crime. But it's a bit vague, perhaps suspiciously vague, And journalists, they're starting to speculate about what this press conference is really about. Behind the scenes, John O'Driscoll is getting nervous. John's the assistant commissioner in charge of serious organized crime. Ever since his meeting with US officials three years before, he's been working on a single objective. And the press conference this morning in Dublin is going to be the moment he finally gets to announce it to the world. But John knows that if word gets out, it could all fall apart. He's chosen the venue carefully. I said that beyond any doubt, it was not going to take place in those rooms that we may have had press conferences relating to the Kenahans previously. Instead, it would take place in Dublin City Hall. It's the right sort of setting for a historic announcement. 
marble floors, huge classical pillars and statues on ancient Roman-style plinths. The holding of the event in City Hall was important, first of all, because it is that wonderful building that it is, but also it is situated in south inner city Dublin, which is where the Kenhan organisation emerged from. Quietly, senior officials from various foreign police forces have been flying into Dublin. People from the US Treasury, DEA and Customs and Border Protection, officials from Europol and the UK's National Crime Agency, including Deputy Director of Investigations, Matt Horn. We'd arrived the day before from the UK and had been extremely well looked after by the Garda from, from the airport. And, um, you know, they were keeping a very close eye on us to make sure that all, the, all of us representatives of the international law enforcement community were sort of well looked after and well protected. And despite all these high-profile police officers arriving in Dublin at exactly the same time, John's been able to keep things under wraps. Everyone's now seated. The hall falls quiet in anticipation, and John walks out onto the stage. Within minutes, the Kinnahans will become some of the most wanted men on the planet. I'm Miles Johnson, and from the Financial Times and Pushkin Industries, this is Hot Money, The New Narcos. Episode 8, The Red Notebook. Back when I started at the FT, as a trainee reporter 15 years ago, I never expected I'd end up writing about organized crime. We covered things like the stock market and mergers and acquisitions. There was this very clear boundary back then between the world we wrote about, the world of business, CEOs and politicians, and the underworld. But something's changed since then. The line between criminal activity and state-backed enterprise between big business and gangsters, it's become fuzzier. We live in a time where some heads of state increasingly act like crime bosses, and the crime bosses, they act like the heads of multinational companies. It could be a world leader investing billions into startups and tech companies, but at the same time ordering the murder of dissidents abroad. It could be North Korean state hackers stealing bitcoins to fund missile programs or Kremlin-backed tycoons using mercenary armies to mine for gold in Africa. Or it could be a cocaine cartel hiding out in Dubai while carrying out contract killings in Europe for a sanctioned regime. It's all part of the rise of a new type of criminal boss, one backed by authoritarian governments. I call them state-backed gangsters, and they're thriving at a time when the world is becoming more fragmented and more chaotic. Reporting on the Dubai supercartel, I've discovered that European drug traffickers have been taking advantage of the same money laundering channels that Iran uses to evade Western sanctions. That seems to be the reason why international criminals have become unlikely bedfellows with a theocratic regime. That press conference that John's arranged he knows it could be the beginning of the end for the supercartel. But before we get to that, I want to take a little detour. Because there's an important question from the start of this series that we still don't have an answer to. The murder broker 
was convicted for arranging the assassination of Ali Muhammad, the electrician who was on the run from Iran. But no one has ever been able to find out who in Iran gave the murder broker his orders. And during the reporting of this series, I came across something that might help us get one step closer. It was a case that revealed a ton of new information about the way that Iran secretly pursues its enemies in Europe, people like Ali Muhammad. And there's someone I want to talk to because he was directly involved in that case. Someone who has first-hand experience of the long history of violence against enemies of the Iranian regime, wherever they are in the world. Hussein Abedini was born in Iran, but he now lives in London. He's in his late 50s and he's quietly spoken, but he's been fighting for most of his life. I have been uh, with the resistance over three decades now, nearly four decades. In the spring of 1990, Hussein was a young activist and he was in Turkey. He says he traveled there to try and stop the deportation of Iranian refugees who'd crossed the border illegally. One day in Istanbul, he's in a car with two colleagues. They're on the motorway when suddenly something blocks the road ahead. The traffic slows down. Hussein's up front, sitting next to the driver. And all of a sudden, we heard, you know, the sound of uh, bullets. They riddled our car from the back. Hussein barely has time to take in that someone is shooting at them when a car smashes into the front of their vehicle. They can't drive away. And another car pinned us from behind. It was then which I realized, you know, this was, a, this was an assassination or kidnapping. A man jumps out of the vehicle in front, the one that's just plowed into their car. He's holding a revolver. And it was only, I think, a couple of meters before he reached our car. I tried to do something. There was a briefcase belonging to my female colleague who was sitting at the back of the car. So I just took that, opened the door and went to stop him. He's clutching the briefcase like a shield as the man starts shooting. The first bullet hit my chest and uh, I didn't know how many bullets, you know, I, I, I received then. And uh, I just uh, fell down, fell down in the street. Hussein's lying on the ground, bleeding, and he can see the man walk up to him. He's preparing to take a final shot. But nothing happens. The bullet jammed in the muzzle of the gun. That's Hussein's first lucky break. The traffic starts to move again, and the assassins take off. Hussein desperately needs to get to the hospital, but the car he was in is smashed up. And everyone else on the motorway, they seem to be trying to run away as quickly as they can. I remember very vaguely that my colleague threw herself, you know, in front of one of the cars. And uh, there was a taxi which just stopped. And I was put at the back of the taxi. And I, I just got unconscious. The hospital was only three minutes away. If it was farther than that, I wouldn't make it. Hussein fell into a coma. It would be 50 days before he woke up. He was told that one bullet had passed very close to his heart and another had destroyed his liver. But even at the hospital, he's not safe. The killers, they come back. And this time, they're posing as his friends. But my true friends arrived and uh, they were told, you know, that there are other people who wanted to come and see me. And when the, those people escaped from the scene, when they realized, you know, there were people 
my true friends, you know, were there. That's Hussein's second stroke of luck. And there'll be a third one as well, when the killers call up, pretending to be the police. They tell the hospital staff that they know Hussein is now conscious, and they want to interview him about what happened. But the president of Turkey in those days was Turgut Özal, and his mother, you know, was in the same hospital. The president wanted to come and visit his mother, and... Uh, they sealed off the whole area, the hospital, and uh, they realized there was another branch of police who wanted to come and see me. And they found out that was a bogus call. It was the Iranian regime who wanted to get rid of me because they didn't want me to speak. That was very pure luck. That was more than 30 years ago. Hussein tells me he's still affected every day by the damage done to his liver in that attack but he's one of the rare survivors of an assassination attempt by the Iranian regime. Several of his friends and colleagues have been murdered since then. Today, Hussein is a senior member of Iran's main foreign opposition group, the National Council of Resistance of Iran, or the NCRI. So the main objective of the National Council of Resistance of Iran is to establish a democratic and a secular government in Iran. Uh, its main principle, of course, has been against any dictatorship, whether it's the former dictatorship of the Shah or the present medieval dictatorship of the Mullahs. The NCRI, it's an umbrella organization, and one of the largest groups within it is called the People's Mujahideen Organization of Iran, known by its Farsi initials, MEK. Now, the MEK, it hasn't always had the West's approval. It was implicated in several terrorist attacks against Iran, including the 1981 bombing that Tehran claimed was carried out by Ali Muhammad, the quiet electrician in the Netherlands. From 1997 to 2012, the MEK was designated as a terror organization by the US government. But over the past decade, it's refashioned itself, and now it's a pretty influential opposition voice on Iran. But for all its acceptance by Western powers, the NCRI remains a top target of the Iranian regime. In June 2018, Hussein and his colleagues are in Paris. They're holding a huge meeting, a rally called the Free Iran World Summit. Tens of thousands of Iranians with many non-Iranian supporters of the resistance who came from 67 different countries throughout the world. Dozens of foreign politicians are invited as well and everyone convenes in a vast conference center. It's only afterwards that Hussein finds out what very nearly happened. I think it was on the 1st of July, the next day, I was told by a friend that the Belgian federal uh, police, you know, they had arrested two uh, Iranians who were trying, you know, to bring a bomb. Belgian police had arrested two Iranians who were on their way to the Paris conference center with a bomb. It's another lucky escape for Hussein and hundreds of other people. And as police investigate the failed bomb plot, they're going to discover something that I believe could shed new light on the murder of Ali Muhammad. It's the most important discovery in decades about how Iran targets its enemies abroad. And this time, the clues aren't just glimpses, hints or encrypted messages. They're in a battered red notebook filled with handwritten notes sitting in the back of a car. Small business owners, this one's for you. 
Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. So Hussein and his colleagues, they discover that someone had tried to plant a bomb at the rally in Paris, and at the same time, Police in Germany arrest an Iranian man on a highway in Bavaria. His name is Asadollah Asadi. And officially, he's the third counselor of the Iranian embassy in Vienna. He arrived in Europe in 2014. But in reality, he's a top spy for Iran's Ministry of Intelligence and Security. It's Iran's equivalent of the CIA or MI6. Asadi is running a network of agents across Europe meeting them in cafes in small medieval towns and handing over secret instructions or bundles of cash. And months before the Paris rally, he traveled to Tehran, returning to Europe with a sophisticated bomb hidden in his diplomatic luggage. The bomb's made from an explosive known as TATP, or Mother of Satan. It's extremely volatile. Asadi carries it onto Luxembourg and hands it over to his agents. And this part of the story, it's a bit less like a Le Carre novel because the venue he chooses, it's a pizza hut. He gives them the bomb with instructions for planting it at the Paris rally. And the code word he uses is PlayStation. But what Asadi doesn't know is that European intelligence agencies have been watching his every move and know exactly what he's been planning. They even disabled the airport security scanner so he could get through. The two agents are arrested as they travel from Brussels to Paris. Asadi is pulled over by the police on a motorway in Germany. 
And in the back of his car, they find a battered red notebook filled with handwritten notes. Notes that revealed that Asadi was involved in way more than one bomb plot. Asadi has listed hundreds of different meetings with agents across Europe. He's itemized cash payments he's made to spies, and he's listed more than 200 places he's visited as part of his work in 11 different countries. Because Asadi, according to the findings of a Belgian criminal court, is part of a secret unit of Iranian foreign intelligence, a sort of murder squad in Europe. It's called Department 312. And its role is to kill opponents of the regime abroad. There's not much public information about Department 312, but what we do know, it's pretty terrifying. It's thought to be a top-secret unit that specializes in spying on human rights activists, journalists, and others who the Iranian regime believed to be a threat. But was Ali Matamid one of their targets? We know that Asadi arrived in his new job in June 2014, a little over a year before Ali Matamid was killed outside his house in Almer. It was the first successful targeted assassination carried out by Iran in Western Europe in over 23 years. And then two years later, in 2017, while Asadi was still free, another Iranian opposition member was gunned down in the Netherlands. So we can say that Asadi arrives in Vienna in late 2014. And then suddenly, Iran is linked to several assassinations in Europe. This isn't conclusive evidence, but according to the Belgian criminal court documents, targeting dissidents, that was Asadi's job. So it makes sense that he would at least be a suspect in the Matamid murder. And we also know that Asadi, he was reporting into really top people in Iran, including the deputy minister of intelligence. After his arrest for the bomb plot, Asadi's put on trial in Belgium, and he gets prison visits from some of Iran's most senior spies and other officials from its foreign ministry. They clearly cared a lot about this case. The criminal case against Asadi was brought by the Belgian government, but there were also 25 others who joined as private plaintiffs. They were all at the Paris rally, and Hussein was one of them, and it gave him access to all the prosecution's evidence. He sent me the files. This is hundreds of pages of documents in several European languages, and there's also extracts from Asadi's red notebook. And there's something else, something that I think could be important. Asadi's job meant that he had to travel a lot on work trips across Europe to meet with his various agents. And it turns out that even spies use Booking.com, the huge online travel agent, to book their hotels. Or at least Asadi did. And the details of all those bookings, they're in the files. So I'm sat here in the offices of the Financial Times looking at these records, every hotel Asadi stayed in over his four years operating in Europe. For some of the bookings, he used his official Iranian foreign ministry email address. For others, it was burner accounts from Yahoo and Gmail. He seems to have met his agents in some pretty low-key locations, and he often seemed to book two hotels in different places for the same night, maybe thinking it would throw off anyone who was following him. And the records, they do show that he traveled to the Netherlands. On the 6th of September, 2016, less than a year after Mohammed was murdered, he stayed at the Best Western in The Hague for one night. The next evening, Asadi booked two hotel rooms, one in the Dutch town of Meppel and another in Svartsluis, both really small towns. And in April 2017, Asadi booked a room at the Savoy Amsterdam for one of his agents. 
So we know he was working in the Netherlands at around the same time that Ali Muhammad was murdered. It's far from a smoking gun, but it's enough. Enough for me to ask Hussein, does he think that Asadi could have been connected to the murder of Mohammed Reza Kalahi, also known as Ali Muhammad? I lay out what we know. So he arrives, Asadi arrives in Austria in 2014. And then in 2015, a man called Mohammed Reza Kalahi, who was living in a town in Almer, was shot and killed outside his house. The murder has never been solved. They know who shot him. They know who told those people to shoot him. The Dutch government then said, we believe the Iranian regime was behind this murder and they expelled two diplomats. But there's never been any any further information about who could have coordinated a plot like that. Do you think it's reasonable to assume that Assadi could have been behind something like that? Well, uh, I don't have uh, precise information about this case, but it I think it makes sense to believe that, uh, of course, I mean, when Assadi was the, you know, the head of this intelligence uh, section in mainly the Western Europe, I, I, I think that is, uh, this could very well be, I mean, Assadi could very well be behind that. So it's reasonable but, to assume, you know, we have a spy working under diplomatic cover, mm-hmm who is in charge of all of Western Europe. Exactly. And his focus is effectively organizing mm. uh, assassination attempts against sure. uh, opposition figures. So it's a reasonable assumption to think that of the assassinations or attempted assassinations that occurred in Western Europe after 2014, he presumably would have had to have some- He's had a hand in it. Hand in it. Absolutely. What Hussein says, of course, it doesn't prove anything. But at the very least, Asadi has to be considered a suspect. There's this new wave of assassinations in Europe, all connected to the Iranian state. And they begin just after Asadi's posted to Vienna in 2014. And the first is the murder of an electrician in a small Dutch town a year later. Asadi's convicted for the attempted bombing in Paris, and he's sentenced to 20 years for attempted murder and plotting a terrorist attack. Iran denies any involvement, but we'll never know if he was involved in Ali Muhammad's death. Because after Asadi's convicted, a Belgian aid worker is arrested in Iran on these trumped-up charges of espionage and sentenced to 40 years in prison and 74 lashes. Then, in May 2023, the Belgian government agrees to exchange Asadi for the aid worker. So Asadi, he's now back in Iran, and his notebook aside, he's taken his secrets with him. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. 
whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. It's the 12th of April, 2022, and we're back in Dublin City Hall. The entire time John O'Driscoll has been working on a plan to sanction the Kinnahans, he's been worried about it leaking because he knows that if the news gets out, they'll quickly be able to hide their assets before they're frozen. Today is a landmark day. But now the Kinnahans have run out of time. And in particular against the Kinnahan organised crime gang. John's boss, Drew Harris, commissioner of the Irish police, steps up to the podium. This organised crime gang started life as a south inner city Dublin drug dealer's but has grown over the decades to become a transnational crime cartel that is estimated to have generated over 1 billion euro for them. Then, a senior official from the US Treasury announces the news that will make headlines around the world. So as of today, the Kinahan Transnational Criminal Organization joins the ranks of Italy's Camorra, Mexico's Los Zetas, Japan's Yakuza, and Russia's Thieves-in-Law. Also, as of today, as a result of these, or, of these sanctions, these individuals are immediately severed from the U.S. financial system, and any assets or property under U.S. jurisdiction are immediately blocked at this moment. We have to stop here for a minute just to take this all in. It's utterly remarkable. A criminal family that began in a Dublin flat in the 1980s is now being compared to the Yakuza and Camorra, crime groups whose origins date back hundreds of years. They've been sanctioned by the U.S. government, one of a handful of organized crime groups to ever face that kind of penalty. And the U.S. also puts a $5 million bounty on the heads of Christie, Daniel, and his brother, Christopher Jr., calling their organization a threat to the entire illicit economy through its role in international money laundering. Detective Chief Superintendent Seamus Boland he knows that the U.S. sanctions will destroy the Kinahan's chance of continuing their life of luxury in Dubai. Because the dangers with sanctions 
is that if any legitimate business engages with somebody who's on a sanctions list, they're actually the people who are committing the criminal offences and they risk all their assets being seized and they risk being prosecuted. So, you know, avenues to live the high life that you would have had before are closed down very, very quickly. You know, people end up with so much money from cocaine trafficking. Behind all this, it's all about greed. You have money to try and live in your big house, drive your fancy car, fly business class all across the world, stay in the best hotels. What the sanctions actually does is it removes a lot of the facilitation that would be possible for people to live their lives and to benefit from the illicit wealth that they've actually achieved. Soon, the United Arab Emirates freeze Daniel's assets too, and they impose their own sanctions on the Kinahans in Dubai removing one of the last places on earth they can hide. The Kinahans, they go on the run. Significant parties within the Kinahan organised crime group all went to ground and have been attempting to evade justice and hide in the shadows since that date. But from our own information and intelligence and, and conversations with other criminals as well, you know, I think this this took it to, to a different level because the criminal on the world in Europe didn't anticipate that sanctions was something that would happen on this side of the Atlantic. But the strange thing is, it's been more than a year since that big announcement in Dublin, and the Kinahans, they're all still at large. It's not clear where they are. I've heard multiple rumours. Some think that they're still in the UAE, living under false identities. Others think that they're somewhere else in the Middle East, laying low. I've even heard speculation that they're building connections with Putin's Russia. So I asked Seamus, why haven't the police been able to bring them in yet? Well, investigations are still ongoing uh, as well at the moment. So the sanctions was only one phase of a of a of a much wider investigation that that's continuously ongoing and and taking place and uh, as was announced in in April 2022 uh, at the designation as well you know extradition warrants were were in place for one of the principals uh, who's sought for for charges in relation to murder and and directing organized crime and and that's still out, outstanding as well but you, you you can rest assured that that investigations are continuing actively uh, across many different jurisdictions for a few years the men who gathered at Daniel Kinahan's wedding in 2017 seemed almost invincible they created a new model stateless gangsters using modern technology to run global mafias in ways that were impossible a few decades before. But eventually, their reputation caught up with them. They made the mistake of becoming too public, too brazen. I began reporting on this story because I think it tells us something important about how the world is changing. And the global shifts that made the Dubai supercartel possible, they're only accelerating. The criminals of the future, I think they're going to be more global, more sophisticated and more dangerous. And I think it's going to get harder to tell if someone's a gangster, a businessman or both. The story of the supercartel for me, it's an ominous sign of these new hybrid threats that democracies face and of government's weakening ability to fight them. The sanctions against the Kinahans, they've been hailed as a victory. 
a landmark in coordinated action by Western governments to take down a major crime group. But there's something I've kept asking myself. Were the sanctions a show of strength or really just a sign of weakness? Some of the world's most powerful governments have teamed up to go after the Kinahans, but a year later, they're still out there. So the Dubai super cartel may be finished, but its model will live on. And perhaps something new, and maybe worse, will take its place. In fact, somewhere out there, it probably already has. Not long before the sanctions were announced, Raffaele Imperiale, the Van Gogh boss, was arrested in Dubai and sent to Italy. He's since agreed to become a state's witness, and in November 2023, he told Italian prosecutors he would sell off his $80 million private island in Dubai in the hope of his sentence being reduced. MTK, the boxing company that Daniel Kinahan co-founded, it closes. And back in the Netherlands, where we began our story, Paul Vux, the crime reporter, has been able to come out of police protection and return to his normal life. We want our life back in full. So not riding an armored car, but riding the bike and sitting on a terrace. Ulisse Elian, the local councillor in Almer who campaigned about the Ali Matamid murder, well, he's now a national politician. In 2021, he was elected to the Dutch parliament. Look, you know, I was like this baby when I got here. My father had like $20 in his pocket. But the honor of representing the Dutch people, it's, it's massive for me. My goal in life is defending democracy, defending freedom. And that relates to the story of my dad and also this story. Look how dangerous the world around us can be. And the Kinahans, they have to live every day knowing they're being hunted by police. For Mike O'Sullivan, the man who first arrested Christy Kinahan in a Dublin flat back in the 1980s, it's only a matter of time. You feel like saying to them, did you not think this day had come? doing what you're doing. Better people than them have been caught. And they have made themselves a global target. And with the DEA on your case, the world is a small place and it gets smaller. Hot Money is a production of the Financial Times and Pushkin Industries. It was written and reported by me, Miles Johnson. And if you've got any leads or information about this story, you can email me at newnarcos at ft.com. The series producer is Peggy Sutton. Edith Russolo is the associate producer. Fact-checking is by Arthur Gompertz. Engineering by Sarah Bruguer. Sound design from Jake Gorski. Jeremy Wormsley wrote the original music. Our editor is Sarah Nix. And the executive producers are Jacob Goldstein and Cheryl Brumley. Special thanks to Rulla Kalaf, Laura Dubois, Peter Spiegel, Tofa Forges, Manuela Saragoza, Breen Turner, John Schnars, Jacob Weisberg, Alistair Mackey, Laura Clark, Nigel Hansen, Paolo Pasquale, Minnie Advincula, Dan Dombey, Tom Braithwaite, Rhonda Taylor, Matt Vella, Alex Barker, Patricia Nilsson, Matt Garahan, Madison Marriage, Paul Murphy, Rich Ward, Arlie Adlington, Marsha Woolraven, Jude Weber, 
Harry Brody, Eric Sandler, Nicole Optenbosch, Christina Sullivan, Vicky Merrick, Jake Flanagan, and Greta Cohn. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.